Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today we have a very distinguished guest in Dr. Anthony Delito. Dr. Delito is the Dean of the School of Health and Rehabilitation Services at the University of Pittsburgh. He received his degree in physical therapy from the State University of New York at Buffalo, his master's and PhD from Washington University in St. Louis. Delito has authored over 120 peer-reviewed research papers. He was awarded one of the first large pragmatic trials from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, a multi-site $13 million grant to investigate innovative ways to reduce the transition of acute low back pain by having physical therapists partner with primary care and deliver psychologically informed physical therapy to patients who are at risk for persistent pain. He has won multiple APTA awards, including six Stephen J. Rose Awards for Excellence in Research. He is a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of APTA, a Lucy Blair and Helen Hilsop Award winner, and he has delivered the John H.P. Maley and Mary McMillan lectures at APTA's National Conference. Welcome to the program, Dr. Delito. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. So, uh... Kind of tell us, uh, you know, you're you've got a pretty big job right now. Tell us what uh, what your uh, role is and uh, kind of what what you do on the day to day. Well, I, I moved from being a, a, a chair of a physical therapy program for over 20 years uh, at the program at Pitt. And I moved from that role to being a, the dean of the school that oversees not just the uh, physical therapy program, but actually 13 other programs. Uh, including most of the rehab professions, um, PTOT, speech, audiology, and so forth, as well as some <clears throat> health-related programs like uh, emergency medicine and physician assistant. So, um, uh, you know, I've been—I was a chair for all those years. Chair generally looks from their position down, and I focused all my time and energy on on the education of physical therapists as well as research. Uh, and now I'm. Kind of looking, I'm in a position now where I oversee all these other programs in addition to being part of the senior leadership at the University of Pittsburgh. And what's uh, what's the difference when you have all those other programs? Obviously, there's more to do and more to be responsible for, but what uh, what have you learned as far as those programs compared to what you know in the physical therapy world? Well, in common with the PT program, uh, almost all the programs I'm overseeing, you know, they're high, you know, lots of applicants um, trying to buy for small numbers of positions. All of them are, are you know, um, important uh, positions for, you know, the healthcare industry. Um, uh, my latest mantra is that, uh, you know, the the professions in the school, which include physical therapy, but all those other professions are really going to comprise over half of the healthcare workforce. Wow. Uh, so, and they're all growing and, um, and we have increasing reliance on these non-physician providers. Um, so that's, what's common uh, with PT. The, the, um, as I said earlier, the, probably the biggest difference is I, as a chair, I really spent most of my time looking in from a hierarchical standpoint from my position downward to my department and the role of PT. Uh, that, that wasn't necessarily bad. I, you know, I loved it and it was a great job. In this position, you kind of have to look down to, when you're looking down, you're looking at all the other programs, but you're also, as part of the leadership of the uh, university, you're, you're, you're really seeing, you know, where, 
all these programs fit in the overall scope of the university. And then when I cross the street and go over to the medical center where they, where they really fit in, in uh, through, throughout the medical center. So you're, you're, you're really, your, your scope is not downward, but mostly, but a lot of it's upward. Yeah. And I don't know if you get that. It's a, but it's, you know, for me, that was a, that took me a little while to get, to get yeah, used to. I can imagine. Well, what is your biggest challenge of the day in your, in this current role that you have now? Communication, probably. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more people to communicate with. Um, they're all, you know, very high achieving people. Um, you know, simple things. Uh, you, you know, when, when you think you've communicated enough, you still probably haven't. Right. Uh, and just keeping people informed, um, especially during, you know, times of, of change right now where you know, I'm I'm getting a new boss now. Um, my, the senior vice chancellor of the health sciences is stepping down, uh, and um, we just had a new provost uh, last year. So at times of change, you're you're it's there are these people coming in, are you know wanting to make their influence felt pretty quickly, and so there's change in the system, right. and you're just making sure that all the leadership is informed and making sure they inform the people they're supposed to inform. That's probably, to me, the biggest challenge. Yeah, and how do you do it with, you know, obviously we have access to email, but, you know, it can be very informal sometimes, yet you can't get everybody together in the same room at the same time so they all hear the message in the same way. And, the, you know, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's very hard to uh, try and figure out how to maneuver through that without somebody feeling like they were left out or they didn't get the whole story or, or somebody put a spin on it. So Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you and and when you think you have it covered, you 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 realize you don't. <laughs> yeah. So I've it's just taken me, you know, probably four years to feel a little more comfortable about that. And and uh, you know, the the secret I think is to is to reach out in multiple ways. So um, you know, there are there's no substitute for face to face, and I have to sp I have to find the time to spend with each of the different departments and programs. So every term I meet them all at least once individually, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I have a communications, we've put together a, a communications um, uh, almost division within the, as part of the Dean's office. And that's helped out a great deal because that, that allows me to um, uh, do all sorts of things with regard to um, videos and uh, updates. And I get reminded about making sure that I, spend some time, especially with, uh, you know, cer certain announcements or certain directions that we take in, in our, you know, that we discuss at our leadership meetings. There's always then the issue, how do we, who do we disseminate this to and how do we get it out there? And this communications group does a really nice job of sort of making sure that I, I touch, I try to touch all the bases. Yeah. There's a real art to that too. I know that, you know, and my experience, we've tried to do that before where you, oh, well, I'll just get on this video and I'll, and pretty soon you realize that, um, okay, first of all, I'm not an actor. I'm not an entertainer. You got to be able to do it in a way that people relate yeah. to it, but yet it's, uh, right. you know, it's, it's, and then you've got to have the technology to do it well. And so it's not as easy right. as it sounds. So no, you're right. You're yeah. right. And so I've, uh, purchased teleprompters and <laughs> yeah. I've had to do that. I mean, I've, yeah. I, I, I need that because I, I, I just can't, you know, 
ad-lib these talks. I mean, yeah. they've, they've got to be crisp and short and get out there because these people have things to do, too, in their days. Well, somewhat related, I mean, how does a guy who's a researcher become the dean of a school in a major university? That's that's impressive. I, <laughs> I always thought those researchers just kind of sat in the in the lab and, the, you know, were by themselves. Yeah, you know, all my life, uh, you know, if you could have asked me the same question about becoming a chair, you could have asked me, you know, it, it's 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 always been an issue uh, for me. Um, uh, and and the answer to your question is really you scale back on on your uh, on the research that you that you can, you know, that I would do if I would just a, if I were a full time researcher, I'd be doing. Um, Probably, I'd be much more productive than I am. I, I, I hope I would anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be wasting a lot of time. So you, you do have to contribute in different ways, uh, uh, which generally means um, uh, in an academic institution, there's always people that want to develop uh, their own research lines. And, and you know, you, you do the best you can at, at, at getting those people to the forefront. And that's what we've tried to do here at Pitt. I've tried to do mm -hmm. that my whole career. And so you launch other people's careers and you support them, and, and the whole objective is just make sure the work gets done. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that I'm, I'm the one that has to lead that work. Well, that's that's talking from a uh, quantity of work or a time issue. But what about the just what makes uh, uh, a good researcher and what makes a good leader? I mean, you might argue just stereotypically that that's a stretch. And so um, uh, now you're in these, you know, this high-level leadership role, and is that – something you really had to learn and develop over time? Or do you think that uh, you're just unique um, um, coming from that world and now being in this world? Um, yeah, that's a, good, that's a great question. Uh, I think for me, um, the leadership um, desire was always there. And the strategies used, that I've used have been similar, you know, in, in the, in the, in the chair's position and the in the dean's position and some other positions I've held, you know, in sort of ad hoc positions, um, it's it's always a function of, um, and I think this is true on the research side too. It's always a function. You you build a team, and it's always a function of trying to find the people with the with the desires and the goals to you know that match up with what you know the the unit's uh, success is going to be based on. And then their success becomes your success, and it's it's really a matter of getting really really good people in place who um, understand what the what the goal is. You know, whether it's a research project or whether it's getting a grant or or, or whether it's uh, you know in our situation now the situation I'm in is trying to trying to orchestrate some some significant changes in how we function within our school. And and um, you know so it it and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, finding it's you know for me, uh, building a research team, um, you know going after certain you know you know research in the area of musculoskeletal you know low back pain and things like that. It took it took a while to to build that team, but it's not it doesn't take quite as long because it's such a narrowly focused goal. You know building a team in the school that. Um, now, once you know we're we're at at the stage where we're transforming education and we're becoming much more distance oriented, and um, uh, you know that that's and, and we have more than one profession. You know that requires a larger team and a much more orchestrated uh, you know strategy. You know how do we roll it out? When what team? What 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 
programs are going to be ready before others. How do we find a vendor that's going to help us get through this? You know, and mm -hmm. so you can see the the scope becomes wider, um, and but but still the strategies are the same. You you have to build a team. Yeah, and, and what has been one of your kind of biggest aha moments when leading people on your team? Um, probably the, um, the the having the good mix of people, the idea people, and uh, and the people that actually will see projects through the project manager types. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you have to have both. Um, uh, and and you know we we you the the most important thing in my mind uh, is is are finding those people who um, who really like the project management component and hold, you know, timelines to hold people to timelines. And, um, and, and, you know, the real good ones, they're not real. They don't, they're not looked at as taskmasters, you know, yeah. they're more, they're more or less looked at as integral components. You know, they're, 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 their method of going about things is, is uh, the good ones anyway, is, isn't such, it's not threatening. It's not nagging. It's just, you know, it uh, becomes part of uh, who they are. And uh, when we, we have a meeting, you know, um, in, in the next week uh, and we're going to discuss the various projects we have going on, we have, you know, my vice dean is really one of these people who everyone knows they're going to have to report on progress and what they're doing. And that may not have been necessarily what I would have done <laughs> starting yeah. the meeting. I probably would have spent mm. more time on more ideas, you know, and... <laughs> Right. Well, so, it's interesting. That, it's interesting when you describe that. So, uh, would you say that a really good project manager is different than a more global leader? In other words, you know, does a good project manager then evolve into uh, a bigger leader? Do you think that's a skill set that's just pretty specific to being that project manager type? I I really think that you can have both. I I, I don't necessarily think the leader has to be the idea person. Um, nor do I think that, uh, you know, the, I, I believe, for example, a project manager could be an excellent leader provided they have the people around them who have the ideas and have the vision and can help with the vision. You know, I, I think it can happen both ways. You know, one of the environments I was in early in my career, uh, we went from having a visionary leader to having a leader that was more or less project management, but the, but the, but the unit didn't really skip a beat. You know, things moved along very well. I mean, probably because the basis was built for, you know, what the visionary leader and the project manager, when she took over, it was really, for the most part, um, you know, just kept that vision in line and kept it and, and they had the people around them who could, um, who could, you know, further that vision, you know, but, but in that direction. Yeah. So I think you can have both. I really do. Yeah, interesting. Describe one of the hardest lessons that you've had to learn uh, as you've evolved as a leader. Uh, probably, uh, you know, the the hardest lesson is is really to um, that that things take time. You know, I, I'm I'm in, inherently impatient. Um, I I you know, was of the opinion, especially first starting out that, you know, if something's a good idea and everybody is in agreement that it's a good idea, let's just get it done. And, and, you know, I didn't, I was probably not as pragmatic as I should have been. Um, I probably was, you know, way 
way too demanding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and when you're in, and you can just you can push people just so far. Um, I think people would who have worked with me would probably still tell you I'm I'm demanding and I push people, but <laughs> but I but I'm not nearly I'm not nearly to the point I was. I think you know I think that was that was something I had to learn over time. I also had to had to learn to have an appreciation for those people that that can uh, project manage and you know I, you know administrate. I don't know what the right word is for them. I, I always like to use project management because that's what I really see them as being. That that's such a huge asset in my mind uh, and and to to our whole operation. And and the good ones, as I said, are the ones that really keep the keep the, keep things moving forward. Yeah, you need the doers and the implementers and. You know, yeah. uh, you can have, uh, I mean, how many just wonderful ideas have been created by very innovative and creative people, but they never come to fruition because uh, they can't get the, they can't get the project done. So. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And they don't know how to sequence it. They don't know. How, I mean, yeah, exactly. So uh, getting back to the physical therapy world, uh, what are we missing in preparing our new professionals uh, for their roles as doctors of physical therapy, do you think? I don't think there's there's any question that um, we have we are missing right now the um, the will to um, implement the 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 just wonderful new knowledge we've gained in the last twenty to thirty years. Uh, you know, I've been a this this May I'll be a physical therapist for forty years, uh, and um, I don't want to sound like the old codger that you know, walked uphill to school, you know, <laughs> right. uh, bo both to and from. Uh, but, you know, I can tell you that when I got out of school, there was there was no evidence. I mean, we didn't know what to do. There was no evidence to guide us. We, we did what other people did, whether it was the people that instructed us or the people we worked with in the clinic or the people we went and saw in the continuing education circuit. You know, we, we didn't base our... our um, our interventions on any kind of evidence. And, and when you think about where we've come in the past, uh, you know, 40 years, we've, we've got, you know, practice guidelines that are evidence-based. We have, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, stride forward in my mind happened uh, two years ago when the American College of Physicians uh, came out with the, you know, non-pharmacological interventions first. Those are the things we do. <laughs> and for the first time we, we trump drugs, you know, with evidence, uh, I mean, to me, that's just that's that's an amazing accomplishment. And if you look at, you know, just take a look at the, you know, the researchers that we've produced over the years. You know, the Pam Duncan's, the, the Alan Jetty's, the Steve Wolf's. You know, the 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 amount of evidence that has been produced has been phenomenal. And and yet we still have, we still lag, getting that evidence implemented into practice. So I think that, to me, is 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 the challenge for education as well as the challenge for practice is to is to is to really do a better job uh, of of implementing the evidence into practice. Um, and I think, you know, I I've, I just gave a talk last week to a bunch of students at a student conclave. And I talked to them as though they were the only people in the audience. And, you know, I I called you know, our generation, the, the generation of, of, of 
producing the evidence. I mean, we created an evidence-based field, a very substantial evidence bo body of evidence that guides what we do. Theirs is going to be the generation of implementation because that's where we lag. If for, you know, we were very successful creating a body of evidence, our generation, but we weren't very successful implementing that body of evidence. And I think this is the generation that has to do that. I, whether we discover anything new ever in the future, I think we will. I think research will obviously will keep going on, but but we have a lot of catching up to do with the with the evidence that's out there now and putting it into practice. So you're saying it's more uh, of the the providers or the, or the the people in the field that aren't doing what is necessary to um, you know move it forward. Um, I'm also wondering how much of this research that, because it kind of seems like to me a lot of times, like like physical therapists understand it, like, look what this says, look what this does, but the rest of the medical field uh, doesn't always give it the, um, the, the the credence or the credibility that, uh, that we do. They look at it differently. Uh, how do you explain that, or how do you look at that? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the I found that that attitude has been changing pretty drastically. Uh, and again, I would go back to the, the American College of Physicians who basically are now saying non-pharmacological first. That's a recognition that the kinds of things we do are really, they, they have the basis that that uh, every anything uh, uh, physicians would do would have. In fact, you know, there's a greater basis to it because there's less risk that goes along with them. So, so I think we've arrived with that. I mean, I, I think, you know, you're still going to have the, the everyday, you know, physicians out there, you're going to run into, you know, those that don't understand what it is we do and therefore don't appreciate what it is we do. But I think the people at the levels of decision-making, you know, the, the people that produce guidelines and things like that to, to, to sway them, which we have done is a, is a pretty big step. Uh, and I, and I think, um, you know, we're starting to see this kind of thing uh, where where what we're doing is appreciated more, even on the payer side. We are starting to see movement on the payer side uh, to to um, work with us on co-payments and things like that. I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more and more of that now. So I, I, I think the credibility is, is improving, uh, you know, drastically, I would say. Uh, it's again, it's, 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 you know, and, and we're no different than any other profession. Um, people will say this constantly to me, oh, you know, it takes 16 years to get something from, from evidence into practice, uh, which is a ridiculous statement. Um, uh, or, you know, um, physicians are, are only about 50% effective in terms of implementing evidence, which is true. There's articles in the New England Journal of Medicine and all over that say that, you know, you have about a 50-50 chance when you see a physician that that physician is going to give you an evidence-based intervention. And we all know the stories of it's physicians prescribing these opioids to acute patients that at, at way higher rates than are warranted. It's physicians who are who are prescribing the MRIs that are unnecessary for people. It's, uh, you know, we, 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 if you fall back on physician behavior, it's, it's, it's about as bad as ours. You know, we're 50% effective in terms of delivering evidence-based care, but that, that doesn't give us an excuse to keep doing this. We just need to, you know, just do a better job of, of implementing evidence into practice 
find the barriers that are out there and some are legitimate and some are not so legitimate and and just do a better job. I mean, to me, that's, if we can be the profession that breaks this 50% rule, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll do well for ourselves in the future. And I think that's what needs to be focused on in education and, and, and in practice. So I, I sense a little in your voice uh, frustration, but I also sense some optimism too. You think we're going to get there? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm, I'm eternally optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 um, there's a lot of reasons why I think we, we will. Um, uh, one is, um, uh, I think if the value-based drive, if it continues to move forward, will, will, you know, will facilitate, I think this, this, uh, process. I mean, people will, you know, in, in a, in a more of a, a, a um, a revenue-based operation, which is, you know, fee-for-service operation, which we're starting to see, you know, uh, diminish, but it's still out there and still in force. You know, we're not hurt. We're actually helped by doing an efficient care. Um, and and the more we, we move toward a value-based approach, and if you believe, like I believe, that eventually we have to get there, whether we decide to embrace it or whether we just have to do it out of necessity, we are going to have to move more toward value-based approaches. That's where, you know, being efficient and being efficient means using evidence, I think, is going to come to the forefront. So we'll either do it because we think it's the right thing to do or we'll do it because we have to do it, you know, and maybe a combination of the two. And and I think people will then be um, much more amenable to doing it. And then, of course, the other reason I'm optimistic is, you know, I think I really think the new generation uh, can will will you know, they're always, they've always been the change agents, you know, to me, uh, you know, at one time you and I were new generation and, you know, we saw our, our profession saw the need to create an evidence base. There was no, there was nothing in it for us to do it. We just did it because we saw it was the right thing to do. Um, I think you'll see the same thing happen with the newer generation coming up, uh, the whole idea of implementation and its relationship to value-based care is going to, I think will come to the forefront. You know, I'm intrigued when I uh, know, and I don't know a lot, but I know some of what your business model is where, you know, you have that, um, you know, the, the private practice or the business side of things, but you also work with the major university. And so there's collaboration there and there's a contract situation. And I don't know all the details about it, but it seems like a pretty cool uh, way to go and, and that uh, that system has seen the value that you, that you bring and how you do it. So, um how do more people do th- do things like that? How do we replicate that? It seems like that's been a little bit slow to come around. Well, it has to come around um, because, you know, things align well. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the first thing that had to happen for this uh, relationship to be formed was there had to be leadership on the clinical side that saw the value of, of, of the partnership with, uh, and, you know, between academia and, and, and the practice, um, you know, that again, the, the story I like to tell is, um, you know, when we were looking for partners, we went out and, and there were 13 different private practices that were in the Western Pennsylvania area that we, and we would have partnered with, you know, one or two or five or all 13, you know, if we could have, you know, 
and only one step forward to say they really wanted to do this. And, and um, you know, we, we made the pitch that, you know, outcomes would be documented and, and uh, process would be looked at and, and only one step forward. Um, so there had to be that leadership that wanted to do it. Now, maybe it's, it would be different today. You know, again, there's more, there's more of an emphasis on value and um, collaboration but, you know, um, and things. Yeah. yeah. No. But in those days, remember in the, you know, in the nineties and mid nineties, you know, life is still pretty good in private practice and people didn't want that model messed with. Well, and I think they were, you know, people have become very territorial and, and, mm -hmm. you know, want control and, and, uh, and a true collaborative relationship. Uh, you can't control everything and you have to be willing to do things in a different way or, or look at it from a different angle. So, right. Yeah. So what advice would Dr. Delito give a young Tony Delito as he was just starting out as a new professional today? Probably um, uh, the, the most beneficial, uh, first and foremost, probably the, the most beneficial uh, uh, decision I made was to, was my first job. Um, it was the, the job where I was uh, offered the least amount of money. I had to move halfway across the country. I'd never been further west than Buffalo, New York, and I moved all the way to St. Louis. Never been in, in never been in St. Louis in my life. Um, there were all sorts. What I'm trying to say is, there's probably all sorts of things that were more negative than positive about taking that job. But but I worked with somebody who had a vision and um, and and really, you know, sh every everything that they wanted to do. You know, had a had a uh, was positive to me um, with regard to the you know the environment and, and you know had some sacrifice for myself, but I I I really from a career standpoint that was that was the the, the game changer for me, and and what it it was a really really critically important. So the first job and making sure that in the first job you're you're around people that you you respect and you and you know, everybody says they should be mentoring you, and that's true. Mentoring is important, but there has to be the environment has to be there. It's more than mentoring. There has to be an environment that supports, you know, the the you know what what it is you want want to accomplish. If you if you want to make a lot of money, that's good. That's fine. You can make a lot of money. Just make sure the environment supports you making money. But if you want to do more than make money, you know, for me it was it was you know. It was it, there were other things that were really important in the, in the environment at Washington University provided that. You know, it's such a, a good lesson. I I spoke at a lot of uh, PT schools uh, around the country, and one of my you know kind of go to talks was uh, the most important decision you'll ever make as a physical therapist as where you start your profession, where you take your first position. Yeah. Because you're you're right on. I mean, it just puts you in a whole different trajectory. If you are around apathetic people and people that aren't really into it and, you know, don't value some things, you know, it's it's hard to get what you need out of it. And on the other hand, if you're in an environment that challenges you every step of the way and, and excites you and, you know, stokes your curiosity and all that, you can just uh, uh, you, you can just imagine the difference it makes. So I think you're right on with that. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, you talked a little bit about mentoring, and, and I can tell you that I've met a lot of physical therapists around the country who consider you to be their mentor. So who was your mentor? Who, um, uh, who, who do you look back to that really helped you uh, be, uh, become the leader that you are today? Well, there's no question that uh, Steve Rose was the was the was a major influence in my career and my life. Um, uh, I was an older student um, uh, I, I, when I started started uh, my undergraduate career. I was 21. I had I had a you know, I had various jobs before that, and um, and started school kind of late in life. And so I was a 25 year old graduate instead of a 21 year old graduate from my program at, at the University of Buffalo. And Steve, uh, for whatever reason, to this day, I don't know his rationale or his reasoning. He sort of took me under his wing and um, and offered me the job in St. Louis when he was offered the job out there. He went out to St. Louis a year before I graduated, and, um, and I followed him out there with a group of other people. Um, you know, there was just, there, there's no question, um, you know, there's so many areas of mentoring that, that um, uh, you know, you can talk about, you know, that sort of, you know, fragment the whole idea of, of, of mentoring. But I think the best way to, uh, to put it out there is he's a role model. Uh, there's no question. He was a role model in a lot of different ways. Believe it or not, he, you know, most of them were positive. Um, but, but the other thing I learned from him is some things I didn't want to be. You know, I, I think, um, you know, there was, I think there were times in his career that he may have ignored some things that were uh, not ignored, but I mean, he was just so, so consumed with uh, physical therapy and so consumed with the profession that maybe he, you know, didn't spend as much time with his family or other sorts of things. And, and I remember, uh, uh, you know, when he recruited uh, Jules Rothstein, who was another pretty close mentor of mine, you know, Jules was even worse with regard to, um, just spending way too much time. And I remember getting called on Saturday nights and having to go over and, uh, you know, and because and the project, some, some sort of project in Jules' mind had to get done. And, um, and I remember saying to myself, I will never call. If I'm ever in the position, I'll never call somebody on a weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so so you get this sort of um, all, you know, the the – by by far, ninety percent of what I did with both of those guys was was all positive. But then there's that ten percent you see where you you say to yourself, you know, that I'm not going to be that that way. You know? No, that's that's learning. <laughs> it's not going to be so all consuming. Yeah, that's learning too. So, have you ha ever had anyone come up to you and just say, uh, "Will you be my mentor?" You know, they yes, I I have. They've come directly out and asked. Uh, most of the time, um, people have 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 just sort of you know, showed up and um, without asking the question formally. And um, I'm a lot, I'm a lot like, um, you know, the rabbi that turns the the potential convert away, you know, a couple of times. Uh, Make sure they're serious. Uh, and, see if they, and see if they keep sticking around, yeah, you know, give them yeah. something to do, see if they get it done, see if they keep sticking around. And, um, and, you know, by, and I've been lucky that I've had uh, many, that have stuck around. Um, I, I always tell the story. My first doctoral student was Julie Fritz, and um, 
Wow. And I thought they were all going to be like Julie Fetch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh... and, and, and some of them came close, but, but boy, a lot of them were, you know, they're still good doctoral students, don't get me wrong, but they're, but, you know, Julie was the kind of person, she never came to me and said, would you be my mentor? Julie was the kind of person that just, you know, was around us as a group, saw the opportunities, took full advantage of them, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, absorbed everything she could out of our environment and our place. And uh, and then I was happy when she left. I wasn't, you know, obviously there's a lot of reasons why, you know, we, I would have loved for her to stay, but only if it was a continue to be a match and she could continue to grow. And and where she went, she she probably grew faster and better and, and to a greater extent than she could have if she stayed. So that, that was the right thing to do for her to go and and uh, and then you know, there's countless others after that. There's, there's um, uh, just they've they've done well for themselves, all of them. And I was happy. I'm happy I was able to give that, provide that environment, and you know, provide that sort of mentorship. I think the the most important thing from um, my perspective is that you know it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which was. Uh, you know, maybe if I had run the lab and all I did was research, I would be more or less hogging all that, you know, all that, you know, just become consumed in it and been the main driver for everything. But out of necessity, you know, with other, with my role as chair and others that, and other positions, that I, it's, it, it necessitated me, you know, turning more and more of that over to these, to these people and consequently they, they grew to a point where they became independent on their own. So that mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's, yeah, well, you, you mentioned Julie, but who, who else, uh, in a, in a leadership, uh, perspective, do you admire and is doing great things either inside or outside of physical therapy right now? That, that I've mentored or, 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 or are you just somebody that you just think is, is doing a great job and really adding a lot to the, uh, uh, to the collective uh, knowledge of PT or or outside PT. Well, I I, I look, you know, I, I mean, I was just I'll give you these aren't necessarily in the order of magnitude, but just more or less what's more recent on my mind. I I look at Sharon Dunn, and I I noticed today uh, she was announced she just got a uh, a nice award from LSU, and I just think she's been a great president. I think she's been, um, uh, you know extremely visionary and I think she's done a, a, a very good job of of, uh, of 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 carrying us on I think Paul Rocker did a marvelous job before her uh, I, I've I mean they, they were uh, you know in my mind you know I think they were they were they are the epitome of leaders uh, I think that um, uh, I I've been uh, uh, most recently, uh, if I had to name a mentor here at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I've, I've been really close with a, um, a person who's the head of our Health Policy Institute, Everett James, who was the former Secretary of Health for the state of Pennsylvania. And and I, I credit him with really broadening my scope in terms of how, um, you know, one looks at healthcare and one looks at um, and actually, you know, the, the environment out there that, that people are having to live in. And, and I, 
that doesn't necessarily mean I'm abandoning the whole notion of being a physical therapist, but 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 it's given me a different perspective of how on how um, physical therapy can be valued, and not just physical therapy, but you know all of the 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 rehab professions can have a you know can be better valued, and how we can document that value in a better way. Uh, he's just done a great job. Um, we've we've got. Um, uh, you know, he was the reason we were so successful in uh, in PCORI funding early on because when he arrived here, he brought with him. You know, he's, he's a lawyer by training, and he's politi- He was, you know, had a political appointment in the Clinton administration, and then had one here in the state. So it was a completely different perspective that he brought to the university, and um, he arrived uh, with the Affordable Care Act in his hand, the whole Affordable Care Act. With tabs all over the place, oh, wow. and uh, basically saying, "Here's the opportunity," and he and he found the opportunity in Pecoria long before people had even known what Pecoria was about, and and you know forced us to read it, and I did a lot of reading in it, and I realized, you know, once I, it it was a revelation for me that here's a here's a group that that wants to fund what I've always wanted to do, <laughs> you know, the actual health services, cost effectiveness kinds of research. So he's been a he's just been a a, a phenomenal uh, mentor for me and a great influence. Uh, uh, and I continue to he's going to be a the interim dean of our graduate school of public health for a while. And I'm looking forward to you know working with him closely for the next uh, uh, for the near future. You know he's he's a he's a strong person in my mind and a, and, a, and you know he's he has. Uh, he he really does have every time I talk to him, he he is is thinking of things with the institute's benefit in mind and not his own personal benefit. And that's another strong good that's a that's a good role model to have and to remind you that you're here as a steward of your program and not just uh you know, not just your own sort of self worth, you know, as a individually. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've been at it for a while. Is uh, what's next for uh, Tony Delito? Is retiring in your plan at all? Are you looking forward to riding your bike every day, or uh, uh, you still uh, still got fire in the belly? I I have fire in the belly, but at the same time, I'm always, especially lately, I've gone through this with my wife. Uh, you you worry about relevance. You really do. I, I've you know, I've for the first time in my life, I've missed CSMs and I've missed annual conferences just because I, I not because of, um, uh, you know, anything except that I just, you know, schedules and things like that. But then I'm when I'm there, I it it's feel it feels like I've been gone a lifetime. You know, I look around and I and I and I struggle with you know myself with um, assuring myself that I'm still relevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I can totally, and, uh, I can totally relate to that. As you know, I, yeah. I uh, retired from my CEO position, and and yeah. uh, that's, uh, if I'm honest, that's my number. That was my number one fear: is how fast or how quick you could lose relevance in in what you yeah. do, you know. And so that's yeah. that's a real, exactly. yeah, I get it, yeah. And people, you know, keep coming. Oh no, no, no! You know, you're you you can't be not relevant. But you know, they're thinking of what you've done in the past. They're not thinking of what, you know, what's happening here and now. You know, and uh, it's it's um, you know, it 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 it's. And I don't want to be the old guy who just hangs around. You know, I mean, right. we've got 
We've got, We've got a lot of those people. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> yeah, no, no, nothing's worse than being the uh, old guy, uh, you know, and stands up to say something and, you know, uh, you know, three quarters of the room rolls their eyes. You know, you don't want to be that guy, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah, I, I really don't. I'm, I'm petrified of that. And I've got enough of that in the institution already. I've got enough of that. And as you said, we see, we see enough of that out there, too. So, anyway, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm without question looking at um, a five-year increment. You know, uh, I've been, I've been, like I said, I've been at the job now for about. I'm in my fourth year. It'll be five years, and uh, uh, I'll be in my fifth year next year. You know, and uh, and I'm looking at the initiatives we have in place right now. Um, they'll either be they'll either going to flop, <laughs> or they're going to be an automatic pilot in in five years. There's three major initiatives that I that I've put in place that I I think are, are really going to, if they're successful, will put us in pretty good footing for the future. And then I think, um, you know, that, that'll put me at the 70-year mark uh, and 70 years old and, and close to that. And I think then I'll probably think about not necessarily retiring, but but at least getting away from this position and going into something that's much more circumscribed you know, but you never know. Uh, Tony, usually at this time in the interview, uh, I asked uh, my uh, uh, the people I interview for a pearl of wisdom as it relates to leadership. So what pearl of wisdom can you leave us with today? Oh, don't try to go it alone. You know, you have to build your team. And that's to me the probably the most important thing. And I don't care how small the task is or how large the task is. Uh, you know, build your team, get them involved from the you know, at at the beginning of your thoughts, um, they'll they'll modify your thoughts as you go along, and almost all the time they'll improve them, and uh, and then they'll help you carry them out. Uh, that's that 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 in my mind is uh, uh, probably the most important thing one can do. A leader is, is a leader never stands alone. A leader always has a team behind them. So, and when you have that team, what is it that you think makes that team gel? I mean, I know it's it's a little bit of a vague question, but you know, is is there something that you can put your finger on and says, if I do this or if I follow these rules, this team will gel? Yeah, I think it's uh, it happens when you're uh, discussing things with people and discussing ideas. So if if for example you have a vision and you sit down and you lay out your vision, these are people that um, try to modify if they have modifications it's modifications for the better they're they're already trying to they're thinking about how you're going to implement that vision and they're thinking about what you're going to need to overcome to do it and 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 in in my and and it just becomes a a positive uh force the entire time you're around them uh and that to me is 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 you know that begins that's the makings of a team and then I think you're you're sometimes it's it's very rare you can build a team from scratch. You're usually taking on people that are already in positions and you're trying to see if they can be an influence, a positive influence and in, and in what you're trying to build as you go forward. And those people that don't fit are the ones that you know are are there's 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 10 reasons why you can't do something. There's never a good reason to do it. Um you know the they just become downers uh, all the time. And I'm not necessarily saying that everybody has to agree with what I want to do. Uh, but, but I think that there's a difference between, you know, you know, having 
that total 100% agreement all the time, which I'm not looking for. I'm looking for people that are going to, you know, make a make an idea I might have or make a vision I might have better. But then there are the people that just no matter what put forth, there's always you know 20 reasons not to do it, and they're just not a good member of a team. There there needs to be a different place for them. So I I, I think it builds and it goes forward. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. And, um, and you know, it, 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 these are the people that are going to help you execute this vision. And um, hopefully it's a vision that people outside of your scope, outside of this group, uh, see as, as important too. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what uh, everyone else has told you, but you haven't been listening, is uh, don't worry about being irrelevant. <laughs> Because what you do is very relevant, and uh, you have been a, an amazing leader in our profession and outside of our profession as well for for, for many, many years. And um, it's just really uh, uh, fun and interesting to talk to you today. So I really appreciate your time on this interview, and I'm sure we can gain a lot from it. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time, Tony. Thanks so much. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for having me. Okay, take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To hear our entire series of interviews, search iTunes Podcasts for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. To view videos of many of my interviews, search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also visit my website, orange.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center, where all episodes of video and podcast episodes are available. Mm -hmm.